You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. For the past two weeks, we've been discussing and talking about the sovereignty of God. We mentioned that you can trust God even when you think you're in control, even when your life is out of control, and even when you're trying to maintain control, you can trust God. Last week, we looked at Peter's denial and Judas' destruction, and we ascertained this. We ascertained that while following after God won't prevent you from failure, following after God will prevent you from allowing your failures to define you. Let me repeat that. While following after God won't prevent you from failure. Following after God will prevent you from allowing your failures to define you. This week, we'll consider this question as we look at our passage of Scripture. Can you trust God even when you don't understand? Can you trust God even when you don't understand? And here's the main point for this week that I want us to grasp as a church and as a congregation. And the point is simple, but the point is clear. The point is this, that God's sovereignty doesn't mean that you'll always know and understand everything, but God's sovereignty means that you can trust him through the process. While God's sovereignty doesn't mean that you'll always know, understand, comprehend everything that God is doing in your life, God's sovereignty means that you can trust him through the process. So here's the tagline I want to leave with you this morning. You can trust even when you don't understand. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we do love you and praise you. God, we come before you, first of all, confessing that you are who you say you are. You are good and righteous and holy. You are like none others our eyes have seen or beheld. God, you are simply beautiful. You are gorgeous. You are good, and we love you. Thank you, God, for being our God. Thank you for taking the speed, the, the place of creator in our lives, sustainer, provider. You've been abundantly good to us, so we do say thank you. God, even those under the sound of my voice right now, we're struggling. We are having things in our lives that are causing us not to believe or to disbelieve your goodness. Would you strengthen our faith today? Would you remind us, Lord, that you don't operate according to our plans, but you operate according to your will? Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is and already in heaven. Hide me behind your cross. Take my little, make much of it as you always do. In Jesus' name, amen. So someone may be asking, how can you trust God? How can you trust God even when you don't understand? Well, the first thing we have to understand to answer that question is this, is that God operates on his own agenda. That God operates on his own agenda. This is a good reminder for us to be reminded that God doesn't need your permission to be God. 
He doesn't need your permission to be who he is. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to comply with it. You don't have to submit to it. God is God because he's God. Love what Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us about God. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Psalm 50 50 verse 12 puts it this way. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and everything in it is mine, declares the Lord. See, God doesn't need your perfection. He needs your commitment. He doesn't need your strength. He needs your submission. He doesn't need your wisdom. He needs your obedience. And he doesn't need your knowledge. But yet he still needs your humility. God is God. And he doesn't need your permission to be God. Notice with me in those verses that God's sovereignty isn't tied to our understanding or our agreement. I love how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. For Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, yet to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness stronger than human strength. It's a good reminder for us how God takes the foolish things of the world And he uses them to bring your freedom. See, in our text today, we see the beauty, but also the travesty of the cross. See, the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews because it was humiliating. To die on the cross was to die as a cursed man. Those who died on the cross were often stripped naked, And though it appears that because Jesus was Jewish, they spared him from being nude because it would be too offensive to the Jews. 1 Peter 2.14 puts it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So, beloved, consider this with me. This morning, consider this question with me this morning. If God can take the cross of Christ to bring you nearer to him, what might he be doing in other areas of life where you cannot see him working? Where you might not understand? Where you may not comprehend? If God can take the cross of Christ, if he can take the humiliation of putting his son on a tree, What else might God be doing in your life? Well, you may not see, well, you may not understand, well, you may not comprehend. 
How can you trust God even when you don't understand? Number one, God operates on his own agenda. But number two, God operates even when you're not on his agenda. Look with me in verse 11. It says these words. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. This is a very important question. And what I want to do today is I want to look at some, some various characters that Matthew puts out to us who was involved in Jesus' suffering. The first character that we see in Matthew 11, excuse me, in Matthew 27, verse 11, is this character of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the governor of the area. And you have to remember what happened up to this point. Up to this point, Jesus has now gone through two trials. He's gone through one trial that was actually unlawful because it happened at midnight. And according to Jewish tradition, no trials can happen at night. So the Sanhedrin and those who came with him with billy clubs and pitchforks came at him to arrest him at night. They took him to Caiaphas at night and they found him the verdict of being guilty of blasphemy at night. The problem with convicting Jesus at night and convicting Jesus at all was that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish people, were under a larger authority. They were under Roman rule. So they themselves could not crucify Jesus even if they wanted to. So what they had to do was they had to wait until the morning. They had to wait till the next day, and they had to bring a charge before Jesus that would incriminate him, not under Jewish authority, but under Roman authority. So that's why verse 11 is so important. Because at this point, Jesus has been condemned by his Jewish brethren as being blasphemous, but at this point, it means nothing. Because the Roman Empire were the only ones who could put a man or a woman on, cr- on the cross or, or crucify someone based upon their guilt. So Jesus now goes before the world's greatest authority at the time. And he stood before the governor and the governor asked him a simple question. Are you the king of the Jews? It's a straightforward, honest question. Listen to how Jesus responds. He says, you say so. Now, if you've been trekking with us at any point up to this point, you should, that, that, that answer that Jesus gave should remind you of something. It should remind you of what Jesus has already said. You say so. This is the same way that Jesus responded to two of his greatest antagonists. Number one was Judas. Do you remember when they were sitting at the communion table and breaking bread together and Jesus mentioned to the disciples that one of you will deny me and all of them looked at each other and started pointing fingers and saying, no, Lord, it can't be me. It can't be me. And Jesus, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Judas uh, whispered over to Jesus' ear and said, is it me, Lord, that will deny you? And he said, you say so. Last week, we looked at him going before Caiaphas at night and um, being declared as being, charges were being brought against him as being the Messiah of of the Son of God. And in Matthew 26, verse 64, Jesus responds in the same way, you have said it or you say 
So this way of Jesus saying it, it means that he's simply saying, your word, not mine. Or another way of Jesus saying this is saying, you already know the answer. (laughs) You already know, Pilate. (laughs) You know what the answer is. You know what the truth is. You've seen it for yourselves. Verse 12, while they were being accused by the chief priests and elders, notice what Jesus does. He didn't answer. (laughs) He didn't respond to a single word that that was brought up against him. And, And Jesus didn't answer just because he didn't have anything to say. In Jesus not answering, he was actually fulfilling the words of Scripture. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7? Listen to these words of the prophet Isaiah. He says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. We'll talk a little bit later about why Jesus remained silent. But for here, at this point, it's important to know that he remained silent His silence, excuse me, wasn't an accusation of him and a presumption of him being guilty. His silence was his way of fulfilling divine scripture. Pilate says to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? Verse 14, he didn't answer him even on one charge. So the governor was quite amazed. You got to know at this point that Pilate's mind is blown. He is totally Um, outside of his element, because this guy is not operating how normally things would would operate in a trial. In a Roman trial, what would happen would, would be this, typically would be a charge would be brought before a person, and then, and then evidence or witnesses then would be able to speak. The person would be able to defend themselves, and then finally the governor or ruler authority would give a verdict of what should happen as a result. So, so charges, Evidence, defense, verdict. But remember, we already said this earlier, that God operates on his own agenda, that he doesn't need to operate in the way that we operate because he is a sovereign God and a sovereign king. And the reason why Pilate is so amazed is because at this point, Pilate is seeing Jesus as being silent and as all of these charges are being brought against him. He's not saying a word. He's not responding. He's not refuting. He's not denying. He's only being silent. Then it's a good reminder for us is that when God is silent in your life, there's a reason behind it. He's not just silent because he's deaf. He's not silent because he doesn't understand He's not silent because he can't comprehend. He's not silent because he doesn't care. If God is silent in your life, there's a reason for the silence. I'm thankful that God remains silent at this point. Because Jesus is being charged as an innocent man. And Jesus could have easily brought up example after example after example to refute the charges that were being brought against him, but he chose not to. 
I'm thankful. People of God, a lot of us think that authority and power are only seen when your ability to fight and to stand up. And listen, I'm all against fighting and standing up against, especially against powers that need to be torn down and, and, and thrown down. But listen to me, true power and authority is not always in, in reacting to fight. True power and authority is seen in having the ability to choose to fight. Jesus is not reactionary here. <laughs> He's not just responding to these charges. He's not just trying to separate two children who are fighting and quarreling and you hear a big smash in the other room and two kids come running before you. It's his fault. It's her fault. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. You got to try to get through the mess to find the truth. Jesus remains silent because God always operates on his own agenda. And Pilate now is amazed because Pilate has never seen this done before. Usually when people are brought before Pilate, they're usually either guilty or, 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 or they, they are, have done something wrong and they're always trying to fight their way out of it. And Pilate is amazed that this man is standing before him silent. He doesn't know what to do. He, he knows what he doesn't want to happen. What he doesn't want to happen right now is a riot because he's already in hot water for many things that he's done. Not just with the Jewish people, but even with Tiberius, the, the emperor, the, the emperor right now in charge. There's already been up, 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 uproars in the, his district. So Pilate is right now is all about preserving himself. So because he can't get an answer from Jesus, he then looks to the crowd. Look with me in verse 15. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner that they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew it was because of envy they had handed him over. So, 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 so understand what Pilate is doing right now. Pilate understands that this man is innocent. He is presumed innocent. There's really nothing that he should be crucified for. He knows that they have brought before him because of envy and because of jealousy. Verse 19, the, the plot thickens even more. While he was still sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. So let's, let's, let's understand Pilate's predicament here. Pilate knows that there's really no evidence that, that Jesus is staying silent. He knows that these men are envious. And then on top of that, his wife has a dream. She comes and tells him, have nothing to do with this man. I've suffered terribly because of him. Verse 20, the chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, what should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, crucify him. Verse 23, then he asked, why? What has he done wrong? But they all kept shouting all the more, crucify him. 
It's a very hard place to be when you know what's the right thing to do, but yet you have no courage or ability to do it. (laughs) It's interesting to me. Pilate was looking for evidence. The evidence was before him. He knew that they brought him before him because of envy. He knew that Jesus was remaining silent before his accusers, and he knew that his wife had a dream. And Pilate now had a choice. Verse 24, it says, When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Verse 25, all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Church family, I want you to see and understand that although Pilate was distracted by his power and privilege, and although he was concerned more about keeping his job than his soul, I want you to be encouraged to know that God was still in control. Notice how Pilate responds. His greatest fear is starting to happen. He cannot have another riot underneath his resume, on on his resume, if you will. The plan that he wanted to have Jesus released backfired on him. He thought, if I send Barabbas in front of these people, surely because Jesus is innocent and because these men are envious of him, the people at least would know the truth and the people will respond in a way that I want them to respond. He takes them out in front of this man, in front of the crowd, and offers them Barabbas or Jesus. It's interesting because Barabbas represents everything that the people wanted Jesus to be. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. According to Mark 15, Barabbas was in prison and actually on death row, if you will, to be, to be crucified because he had actually committed murder during an insurrection. Everything that the people wanted Jesus to be, the type of king that they wanted Jesus to be, Barabbas was. He was a man that was going to pull down and throw down the Roman Empire even if it meant killing and destroying those in power. And as the people had a murderer in front of them, and as they had the king of the Jews in front of them, Pilate wanted and hoped that they would go to the most logical choice. But the chief priests and elders, verse 20, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. He asked them, verse 21, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they shouted Barabbas. 
Verse 22, what should I do do with them with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said, crucify him. It's interesting to know, God, uh, uh, church, that God operates on his own agenda, and God operates even when we're not on his agenda. When we don't understand, when we don't comprehend, when even we, we try to put the, uh, pl- uh, put the pieces in the right place and they still don't work out they want, how, how we want them to work out, there's encouragement for you that God is still in control. Notice what Pilate says in verse 24, excuse me, what he does. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to yourselves. So he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I love this because it's a good reminder that, listen, there, there, is, there, there, there are, you, <laughs> you can't forgive yourself from sin. <laughs> Obviously, Pilate did not crucify Jesus himself. But he was the one who permitted it. It reminds us of the two types of sin that we see in the world of those of commission and omission. Sins of commission are things that we do, things that we enact, things that we move towards. I got angry at you. I'm mad at you. I hit you. I like what you have, so I come and take from you. I steal from you. These are sins of commission, things that we do, that we commit. But there's also other sins of omission that James chapter 4, 17 talks about. And James put it this way. He says, when you know, when you know, what to do, when you know the good that you should do, and yet you don't do it, that too is sin. So there are sins of commission that we do, but there's also sins of omission. I don't have great examples of what sins of omission look like, but I'll give you a quick one that I can recall. When we was in Maryland about, oh man, I don't know, when we was 13, so probably about seven, eight years ago, uh, she was probably about four or five years old, maybe. Yeah, probably four years old. So about nine years ago, my wife and I, we, if you've ever been to Maryland, traffic is really tight. It's, it's tight. It's always going. East Coast is, is very, very, very busy. Tight quarters, busy, busyness does not mix well. <laughs> we were going home, and I remember the Lord put it on my heart. He said, listen, he, I don't even know where this came from, but the Lord put it on my heart. He said, um, it'd be awesome if your daughter saw you serving, serving someone, um, to, to serving someone who needed help. This thought just came to my mind as I'm driving. I'm thinking, okay, all right, that's good, Lord, thank you. I'm driving along, and all of a sudden, I stop at the red light, and sure enough, right here to the left, there's a woman who stopped. Her car stalled out. She's sitting there. And I'm thinking, like, God, why did you just say that to me, please? Like, come on, man. Don't, don't do this to me. I'm trying to get home. So I decided, I was like, all right, okay. All right. So I, I told Katie, I said, all right, um, I think I'm supposed to help this woman. I don't know why, but I'm, I think I'm supposed to help this woman. So we pulled the car over. Again, getting over like three or four lanes of traffic to get over. I jump out the car. I come see the lady um, and pretty much at the end help her out um, to, to kind of move her car. Her car got stalled out, need to be pushed into like a, a local dinery. But that's one of the best examples for me personally. I'm not talking about for you. For me personally, that's one of the best examples I could see of sin of omission, that God, the Holy Spirit, 
personally directed me. And even before I saw the need, God put it on my heart that I should respond. And I knew what I should do in that moment. I knew it, absolutely, without a doubt. I saw the moment, and I had a choice to either respond or renege. And by the grace of God, in that time, I decided to respond. Not because of being a good person, not because I just wanted to, you know, whatever, exalt myself. I did it because God put it on my heart before I even saw it. And he wanted me to be a living a living example of Christ's love for that woman in that moment in her time of need. And I responded to it by saying yes. Sins of omission. Now, I'm not saying to you every single person on the side of the street you need to give a dollar to or give food to. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that if God puts it on your heart and you personally ignore it, personally push it away, suppress it, Yeah, that may be sin of omission. God, we just said it earlier, if God is silent, it's for a purpose. But when God speaks, when God says something, when God instructs us, it's also for a purpose. It's not him just talking just to waste air. God speaks so that his body may move and respond to the way that he wants us to move and respond. Let me put it even more plainly to you. Right now, through God's word, he's speaking to you. He's sharing a message with you. He's giving you insight into who he is, his character, and what you do with that is is very, very important in your discipleship and your growth and relationship with him. When God is silent, he does it He's on purpose. When he speaks, when he directs, it's also important. How can you trust God even when you don't understand? Number one, God operates on your own agenda. Number two, God operates even when you're not on his agenda. Finally, number three, God operates all things towards his purposes. We see this specifically in verses 15, uh, excuse me, 15 through 44. Verse 32 starts off this way. It says, as they were going out, they found a Cyrene man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, they gave him wine mixed with gold to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. I love this because in this moment of Jesus being weak from being flogged and from beaten, being flogged means that they literally had whips with bone and metal sharp edges at the end where they would literally whip and tear off Jesus' skin. So Jesus had not just been beaten and assaulted, but at this point he had been flogged. Think of Passion of the Christ and think of the moments you saw that in that movie of the whip literally coming on the other side of Jesus' ribs and literally ripping flesh out from his side. This is what has happened and is happening to Jesus. And as Jesus is weakened 
Um, as a human being, God in flesh, God incarnate, at, he, at his weakest moment, he is then asked to carry the very cross that he will be crucified on. The cross would weigh about 30 or 40 pounds. So after being beat and being flogged, Jesus then, as an innocent man, is asked to carry a cross that would then he be hung on and crucified on as a guilty man. And in the midst of this, Matthew's the only writer to record this. A, 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 a Cyrene man named Simon. Simon, Cyrene is from North Africa. This is, this is a man who has sojourned because of the Passover. He is there in that area because of the Passover at this time. And he is among the crowd and they grab him and they push him in front of Jesus and tell him, demand him to help Jesus carry this cross. I thank God. One of the things that I love about Jesus, one of the things that I find so appealing to, about him is that Jesus never refused help. <laughs> As the sovereign God of the universe, he could have conjured up strength. He could have pushed Simon away. He did it. He embraced his weakness. He embraced his frailty. He embraced the cross with help from Siren, a man from Siren named Simon. And as Simon helped him go to the cross, and as Simon saw him being nailed to the cross, and as Simon saw him being raised up and being crucified for the forgiveness of sins, I think something moved in Simon's heart. And the reason I say that is because other translations actually don't just say Simon, from the man from uh, Cyrenian. Other translations says Simon, the father of Alexander and also Rufus. And if you look at Romans chapter 15, verse 13, you'll find that Rufus was a very affluent man that Paul actually wrote about as he wrote to the church at Rome. See, Jesus allowed this man to carry his cross, but in some real sense, Jesus also allowed this man to put his hands on the very cross that would bring him salvation. He allowed him to, to come near and to smell the sweat and to see the blood and to see the burdening of what his sins deserved. I thank God that he allowed Simon to come close because Simon was able to see and understand that this wasn't just a man being crucified. This was God's son who was crucified as a sacrifice for human sin. And if this man would not have been crucified, then I, Simon, could not be set free. See, God is in control. <laughs> he operates on his own agenda. He operates when you're not on his agenda. And he operates all things towards his purposes. There is no aspect that God is not in control. I love how 1 Corinthians 1, 26 31 puts it. It says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful 
not many of a noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed upon as being nothing to bring not to bring um, to bring nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, no one, let no the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray our boasting in you. We thank you, God, that we boast in the cross of Calvary. We boast in the reality of your sovereignty. God, help us to know that, God, <laughs> that you are in control. Even when we think we're in control, even when we are trying to maintain control, even when our lives are out of control, you are in control, Father. Help us to trust you even when we don't understand, even when we can't comprehend. I thank you, God, that although Pilate denied you, through his example and through your example on the cross and through your fulfilling salvation on the cross through the destruction of your body unto death, there was a man in Acts 10 named Cornelius who found salvation. I thank you, God, that although there are plenty of men and women who deny you, it does not dilute the fact that you are sovereign and you are king. Awaken us to the truth that you are sovereign Waking us to truth to your, to your being omniscient and all-powerful. Awake us to the reality of your sovereignty, that you reign, God. Forgive us for being prideful and arrogant in our hearts, thinking that we can cause you to do the things that we want you to do. There is no power in this world that does not have its origin in you. So we find our hope in you today. It's our sovereign God and King. Grow us, Lord. Strengthen us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we invite you to partake of the bread and wine that speaks of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The bread and wine you're about to partake of speaks to the reality of God being our perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. And by partaking of this meal... It proclaims much more than eating bread and wine. It proclaims Jesus' death until he returns. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you at this time to look at Romans 10 and 9. That simply says, if you confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart that God sent his son and raised him from the dead for the forgiveness of sin, you will be saved. Confession means agreement, that we agree with God. We agree with him and what he says. And our, our speaking with our mouths is allowing our confession to correspond with our testimony of what we say. For those who are believers, followers of Jesus, we're reminded that only he alone has fully and eternally atoned for our sin. And only he alone has given himself as a sacrifice, as a peace offering before God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and blessed it and said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Let us eat that bread together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
In the same way, he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. Drink from it, for as many as you drink of it, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us take and drink of that cup together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'll tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of mine from now until the day that I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.